am part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And so I want to uh, invite you to come on back in from the foyer, grab your beverages, and take your seats. And we'll continue with our teaching time uh, together this morning. Well, we're almost finished the month of January. I'm not quite sure where the month has gone, but I do remember living portions of it. Uh, but and when we started out in the new year, I asked you guys, uh, as a general rule, are you fond of making resolutions? The general read of the room was no. I don't want to disappoint myself uh, only a few weeks in having not succeeded at something. Uh, you're a little coy about it, but some of you talked about setting goals. Um, and one of the goals that sometimes people will set for themselves is they'll talk in terms of, well, I want to read through the Bible in a year. I want to get more scripture intake. And usually when you think about that, uh, then the month of January can go okay. You're kind of powering through it for a bit. Uh, maybe you're in Genesis. You're engaged in a lot of the stories and thinking, wow, these people have a lot of family drama. Uh, sounds like my family a little bit. Uh, then you get into the law, you get into the next books, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you think, wow, this is really heavy and maybe a little dry for you. Uh, and then once you get past that and you get off of the beaten track of the stuff that we cover in kids' stories in Sunday school, you might think to yourself, okay, now I'm really lost. I don't know where I am. And then you start to read stuff and you think, well, this strikes me as just very different than other parts of the Bible. And so one comment that I will often get from people who are exploring the Bible or who are seeking and who are wrestling with, is God real? I don't know if I believe in God uh, or not. Or people that are skeptical is they'll say, listen, Brad, I read through the Bible I find things in the Bible that are distressing to me, and I don't know what to do with them. And one of the things that people will often talk about in that frame of reference is they'll say, it just seems like God gets mad in the Bible. What am I supposed to do with that? Is God just like waiting around up in heaven like this Far Side comic, and he's just waiting for you to do something wrong, and then boom, he's going to like push the button and drop a piano on your head in some way if you do anything wrong. I mean, one of the most fundamental questions that we have to wrestle with if you're a person that believes that God exists is the question of what is God like? What's God's character? What is God's nature? What part of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, what parts does that play in answering the question of what God is like for us? Because there's lots of answers to the question. People have lots of answers in our culture, what God is like. Uh, one of the most uh, famous answers that floats recently around is in a book called The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. And Dawkins says this, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. He's jealous and proud of it. He's petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistal, capriciously malevolent bully. Is that what God is like? 
He's reading the same Old Testament you're reading and coming to those conclusions. Is it true? Is that critique an accurate critique? Is the God revealed in the Old Testament really just mad? And then somehow, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus comes along, and we now understand that God is all about love and peace. How do you reconcile those aspects? And it's a tension that confronts us right here in the book of Amos, which we've been studying for the month of January. You may have listened on Sunday, or you may have gone home and read uh, some of the passages in this short book in the Minor Prophets, tucked away at the end of the Old Testament. And you might have thought to yourself, you know, Brad, God comes off as a little bit vindictive in Amos, or capricious, or angry. What do we make of all of this language of God's judgment. God saying to Amos, I will destroy this nation. I'm going to punish this person. Well, let's look at that in the book of Amos. Uh, We've seen in the book of Amos that uh, God speaks to uh, Amos, who's a prophet, not a professional prophet. He's a farmer and uh, a, a shepherd. And God gives him a bunch of pictures to share with Israel and Judah and the nations around And he speaks prophetically into these situations because of the widespread injustice that's going on. And things in Amos' time are really, really off track. And so God is calling people back to the start again and helping them understand what does it mean to do justice? What does it mean to love mercy? What does it mean to walk humbly with God? And some of the images are very stark images of judgment coming to those who persist in walking down pathways that God does not want them to walk down. So we see in the book of Amos chapter 2, Amos says, God is like a fire that refines. Areas of impurity are being taken away and drawn out of individuals or nations, just like if you were to put a precious metal through a intensely hot fire. It would refine it and separate the purity from the impurity. And so Amos says, God is like that. Another uh, image in the book of Amos is that God is like a lion that roars. And Amos says in Amos chapter 3 that the justice that God is bringing against those who oppress the innocent, those who are on the margins and exploits those who are poor. It's not going to be a time of gentle rebuke. It will be like a lion coming into their lives. And it's to be feared because people have, in the language of Amos 4, they've forgotten how to do what is right. They know what is right, but they've just, over time, decided that they do not want to do it. And so chaos and oppression begin to reign in the nation. And God's going to come in and attend to that. Another word picture that Amos uses to try and and help the people of his day understand how bad things have become is taken uh, from the world of construction. And so Amos says, God is like a site supervisor, a superintendent who comes to check on the construction project and how it's going, and he finds nothing but shoddy workmanship happening. And the image that Amos uses in Amos chapter 7 is that of a plumb line. And for those who are not handy or involved in construction in any way, something that is plumb 
means that it's straight. It's vertically aligned, and it's accurate. And so in the ancient world, if you're a builder, and you want to come along and check on a project and see, hey, did my masons lay this brick wall straight? You would take out a plumb line, which was a weight at the end of a line. You'd hold it up against there, and you'd let gravity do its work. And then you'd say, huh, this is straight, but this wall is not in alignment with that. And so God says to the people of Amos, I'm going to test my people. I'm going to no longer ignore their sins. And when God puts the plumb line up to people, he finds that they do not treat each other. It's out of alignment. They don't treat each other, and they don't treat those in their culture, and they don't interact with God in the way that they should. And so God says, this is not a minor misalignment that we can fix. We actually need to tear down the wall and start the project over again. And so Amos continues to bring these pictures into the minds of the people of Amos's day. That God is coming to assess the situation, and he's not going to just do it randomly or malevolently, but God is going to deal equitably with what he finds in people's lives and in their nation. And so eventually we come to Amos chapter 9, and this is where we'll round out our study in the book of Amos this morning. And God pronounces his final words on the situation. And I invite you to turn to Amos chapter 9 in your Bibles or on your devices. A Jericho app, if you've downloaded that, it has a Bible built right into it. And you can look there if you like. And we're going to see in this chapter that there's some characteristics of God and what God is like that help us understand how we should be. And there's a few characteristics about us and about how we engage in the world that we need to pay attention to. And also, we're going to see a few principles for biblical interpretation that can help when you get into a conversation about friends that might throw around a quote from Richard Dawkins and say, well, that's apparently the God that you serve and worship, so that's an evidence for God's non-existence. I don't want to worship anybody like that. So we got a lot to cover. So let's look at uh, Amos chapter 9, and we'll start, I'll be reading uh, starting in verse 1. Amos 9.1, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Amos says, Then I saw a vision of the Lord, and God was standing beside the altar. And he said, Strike the tops of the temple columns so that the foundations will shake. Bring down the roof on the heads of the people below. I will kill with the sword those who survive. No one will escape. Even if they dig down to the place of the dead, to Sheol, I will reach down and pull them up. Even if they think they can climb up to the heavens, I will bring them down. Even if they hide at the very top of Mount Carmel, I will search them out and I will capture them. Even if they hide at the bottom of the ocean, I will send the sea serpent after them to bite them. Even if their enemies drive them away into exile, I will command the sword to kill them there because I am determined to bring disaster upon them, and I will not help them, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So right away, you could see how somebody could read this and think to themselves, God sounds very angry in the book of Amos. So much so that uh, someone 
in uh, our dear friends to the south, took out this billboard, noting apparently from the book of Amos that they think that God is very angry at some very specific things, none of which actually come up in the book of Amos. But apparently God meant to talk about political leanings. He just omitted it from the book of Amos. But we need to pause for a minute and ask ourselves and do a quick reminder, both for whoever took this billboard out as well as for ourselves, about a few principles of biblical interpretation. Because we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions when you're reading anywhere in the Bible. So the first, this is just a, a little precursor to us jumping back into Amos chapter 9. We have to ask ourselves, what do we know about the genre or the writing style of this particular passage? Because that can help us make some informed decisions about what's going on. For example, we know, because it's right in the text here in Amos chapter 9, that Amos says he received a prophetic and poetic vision from God while he was in worship and a vision of God dealing with people in the place of worship, the temple. And so we know that this is a, a picture that God has given to Amos because we don't, people are not literally able to ascend into heaven and hide out from God there. People aren't able literally to hide at the bottom of the ocean. God's not literally sending sea serpents after people to bite them. So we need to then be attentive and pay attention to the language that Amos is using here and then be careful about extrapolating because that billboard then was saying, if God sounds angry, God's angry. But we need to pay attention to what we extrapolate from this text about God being angry. So the other quick aside that we need to say is that whatever we come across something in the Bible and we're unclear about it, it's fuzzy in our minds or we're unsure and we just think, I'm not 100% clear on this. We need to check it against things that are clear and that we do understand from the whole witness of God's revelation to us in Scripture. And so, if we're looking at this and thinking, I don't know, God sounds angry in this, we need to ask, what do we know about God from the whole of the Bible? We know, for example, that Jesus is the pinnacle of God's self-revelation. And so, God's clearest picture to us of God's self is revealed in Jesus. And that's not saying that some parts of the Bible are more important than other parts because that is how some people resolve this tension. They just say to themselves, oh, well, yeah, yeah, God sounded really angry in the Old Testament. But that Old Testament God was a different God. That was like God the Father. And then, yeah, God the Father is really kind of, you know, pissy. And, and in the New Testament, it's all about Jesus, the Son. And so really... We've thrown out, and we don't deal with that Old Testament God anymore. We just deal with Jesus, and, and we're just excited about how Jesus reveals God's love to us. And so they just divorce the Old Testament from the New Testament and just say, well, it's a different dispensation now. We're in a new time, so let's forget about all of that business beforehand. And that's a dangerously oversimplistic way of addressing and resolving inner tensions in the text, Old or New Testament. Just to throw out or pretend, ah, eh, we don't really like that one, let's throw that out. That doesn't really match my, my personal view of God, so I'll just not deal with that. 
we say, well, I don't want to be in a relationship with God that seems angry, so therefore I will only relate to a God who is love. <coughs> Which is probably why a lot of people don't read the Minor Prophets. <laughs> but I want us to be careful because it's not fair, and it's, it's not fair to the witness of the text as a whole or to this particular text, to somehow play God's attributes off against one another or to split up members of the Trinity from each other and say, well, God's in charge of justice, Jesus is in charge of love, Holy Spirit's in charge of power. It's not fair to do that. It's not fair to pit the Old Testament against the New Testament and somehow think that, well, we're dealing with two different gods or expressions of God. That's not a helpful way for us to resolve this text. We have to look at the whole witness of, the, of both Testaments and say, what do we learn and know about God? And then bring it back to this passage in Amos. So what do we know about God's character that could help us make sense of Amos chapter 9? One of the first things that we know is that God is just and fair. And this counters what Dawkins accuses and others accuse God of, because that picture of God that Dawkins presented is that God is somehow unstable and could fly off the handle at any moment, and we wouldn't know it, but we might be at the receiving end of something really, really bad. And that is not the witness that we understand from God's revealed character through Scripture. That God is a God who is just and who is fair. God is the only being in the entire universe who is entirely just. God is justice. And out of this flows God's just character and his attributes that display this aspect of God's character. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, Another word picture that's used is that God is a righteous judge. And if you think about it in those terms, it does help us to understand a little bit about God's justice because even in our judicial system, when a judge hands down a sentence that is a true reflection of justice, they're not doing it because somehow they've been personally wounded or uh, that they are vindictive towards a person who is accused. No, they're merely expressing an aspect that justice has been violated, a wrong has been committed against others, and in order to see justice done, something needs to happen. So judges, we, we like to think of them as dispassionate. They don't sort of jump into the fray and say, I feel personally wounded by what you have done. Therefore, I'm going to give this sentence to you. They distribute, when things are working well, justice. And so God is a righteous judge, meaning that he is always accurate in the way that he perceives and engages with justice. And so justice in God is a revelation of his holiness, but it's devoid of all passion or caprice. God's not mad and therefore needs justice. There is in God no selfish anger. And throughout the book of Amos, what Amos is doing is he's helping us give a picture of what restored and right-working relationships between humans, between humans and God look like. And God 
when that doesn't happen, is saying, hey, the way that the world is supposed to operate, shalom has been violated. It's been turned upside down. Evil things are being called good. Good things are being called evil. And God's saying, that is not accurate. I know because I am right and just. And that's why we see things like Romans chapter 3, verse 6, where it says, if God was not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? God's righteous assessment of what is going on is always accurate. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, Peter reminds us and says, whatever else is going on in our world, wherever else injustice is prevailing, at the end of all things, God always judges fairly. And so when it comes to God's just and fair dealings with us, the people in Amos's day had more than adequate warning and foreknowledge about God's expectations of how they should interact for justice. They knew what they should be doing, and they willfully ignored it. And then suddenly, as Amos reminds them, they get freaked out about things. Think about it this way. Uh, a few years ago, I, I taught a class at Columbia Bible College. And so at the beginning of any class, you know, you get a syllabus. So I hand my syllabus out to all of my students, and I say to them, listen, there's a set of assignments. Some of them are weekly, so I need to see those. Some of them are coming due at the end of the term, and I need you to get those in by such and such a date. And I'm telling you the due date now, so that you can start working on this. I'm giving you 16 weeks notice that this is when I need it. And part of the reason that I needed that is because, you know, I had other things going on in my world. And so I didn't want a bunch of stuff bleeding in past the calendar date. And so I said, listen, some of you I know already, because you're undergrads, you're going to come to me on the day after that day. And you're going to say, oh, I need an extension to get this stuff in. I'm just working on it so hard. And I'll say to you at that point, listen, we talked about it. We've set this in place. This is like a little contract we're going to make now. That is the due date for the assignments. And I'm not going to accept assignments after that date. I was like the professor I would have never wanted to have had. I always wanted mercy, always wanted extensions on everything. But I said, listen, I'm, I'm just telling you now, this is fair. I'm giving you 16 weeks notice and like, it's not a big paper. You can make it. You can do it. And sure enough, a few of them came afterwards and begged and pleaded and pleaded. You know, I said, listen, we talked about this. We decided what was just and fair. It's not fair to the other students who worked hard if now you get all this extra time to kind of work on this assignment. And so sometimes when justice comes our way, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, we feel very personally wounded by it. But when God is, is describing his justice, it's not vindictiveness that's being described. It wasn't that somehow when I was teaching that course, I just had it in for these students. It was an expression of saying, this is what is fair. And the same is true for God and God's people in Amos. They had ample and clear warning as to what was right and the consequences for what was wrong, and they still chose what was wrong. And so God's 
justice moves into that place. Now, we need to acknowledge that this does not, just because we say God is just and fair, this doesn't answer all of the questions that might immediately spring to your mind. Well, what about those who have never heard about God's laws, Brad? People that, you know, don't have a scripture translation in their language yet. What about people who haven't heard? What is God going to do with them? Remember what we said earlier, when we get into areas of things that we don't know, we need to ask, what is it that we do know? And we do know that God is just and God is fair. We also know that you and I are not in charge of dispensing justice and fairness. And so we need to then take a step of trust and say, God, I trust that you will always do what is fair and just. Because this is a characteristic of God that is revealed to us in the biblical witness, that God is fair and that God is just. Let's keep motoring. We've got more ground to cover. So the second thing we need to pay attention to about God's character and the expression of God's character is that right away in this conversation, we've bumped into a category confusion. And when we start saying things like, wow, God looks really angry in Amos chapter 9, we need to remember that divine wrath is not human anger. Those are not the same things. And the challenge that we have is that we have, God's created us with a set of emotions, and so we have the ability to experience anger. We do not actually have the ability to experience wrath. That is something only God experiences, and it is not the same as anger, even though we want to drag it into the conversation about anger. So we can't actually ever experience what God is describing to us, which is a little bit of a tricky thing for us. Anger is an emotional response that we as human beings have to situations. Wrath is God's divine consequential response to sin. And we get a better picture of this in the New Testament when Paul talks about what's going on and the effects that we have. And we spoke about this a few weeks ago on us as humans when we choose to engage in sin. Romans 2 verse 8 says, God will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves and who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. Well, what does that mean? God's going to pour it out. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how sin is always a distortion of our existence and our personhood. And in his commentary on Romans 1.18, where the text says this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, theologian Luke Timothy Johnson says, the wrath of God, that phrase, the wrath of God, and then it's in Greek there, for those of you who like that, is not a psychological category. It's not an emotion that God is experiencing. It's a symbol. It's widely used through the Old Testament. And then also in Revelation, it shows up a lot. And we talked about that in our series on Revelation. For the retribution that comes to humans as a result of their willful turning away from God. God's wrath is that symbol of the destruction that humans bring on themselves by rebelling against God's truth. 
It's retribution that results not from the whim of an angry despot, but as a necessary consequence of a self-distorted existence. This is what I think that Paul is talking about in, in Romans chapter 3 and in Romans chapter 6, where he says, the wages for us continuing in sin is death. Sin has consequences, wages, a transaction that is legally owed to those who have earned them. But what and how are those wages paid out? Part of it is we begin to experience, when we live in places of sin, distortions of our personhood, our identity, our view of the world. It begins to be skewed and disturbed. Jonathan Edwards was probably one of the most famous preachers in American history. And in one of his most famous sermons, which I have a number of issues with that I will not get into, but this he says, and I think it tries to capture this, and he says this, sin is the ruin and misery of the soul. It is destructive in its nature. And if God should leave it without restraint, there would need nothing else to make the soul perfectly miserable. In other words, if sin gets into your life and it begins to run around and take over increasing areas of real estate in your soul, sin is inherently destructive by its very nature and it will make you perfectly miserable because it distorts our souls. And we can tell ourselves otherwise because sometimes sinning feels really great in the short term. But over the long term, we begin when we perpetuate patterns of sin to self-destruct and distort. And ultimately, this will result in our ultimate destruction and distortion. And so God, in his justice and in his mercy, steps in and exhibits something that, again, we don't have the capacity to do, and that is wrath. And God says, I'm going to put a check on this. In my just and fair judgment for what has transpired, this needs to be restrained or it will destroy you. And this is bound up with how God has created us as humans. God created us with a free will and the ability to choose. And what happens then is both us and God end up living with the consequences of the world that God has created. And so the thing we need to understand about ourselves is, thirdly, we are free to choose, but you are not free from the consequences of your choices. This is the language that comes to us in the Scripture when it says things like, be sure your sin will find you out. Or you can choose to sin. But you need to pay attention to the fact that because sin by its very nature is dis distorts and destroys, there are consequences that will come to you. Another um, word picture for this is the language comes to us from agriculture, and that is reaping the things that we sow. So if you think about sowing and you think about planting a garden in the spring, that garden doesn't immediately spring up. It takes some time 
and some nurture and some care, and then eventually you reap, hopefully, that things that you have sown. And so the same thing can be true for us when we talk about and think about choosing pathways of sin. You're going to reap what you sow. So be careful what you allow to take root in your life. In the language of Romans chapter 2, it says, because you are stubborn and because you refuse to turn from your sin, because you don't actually weed the garden and get rid of the stuff that's getting in there, you are storing up for yourself terrible punishment. You're warehousing risk in the language of actuaries. By continuing to persist in willful and destructive patterns, you're going to reap what you sow, and so be careful. Greg Boyd is an American pastor and author. I don't agree with everything Boyd chases down, but that doesn't mean he needs to be vilified or you need to burn his books. You just need to read him with discernment. But I'm grateful to Greg because he has a good word picture that he uses about this. And he talks about the effects of sin like a boomerang. And he says this, when we sin, sin acts like a boomerang. You're throwing it out there. And eventually, what does a boomerang do? It comes back and it smacks you in the face. If we commit affairs, it will most often break up our marriages. If we hurt others, hurt comes back to us. God doesn't personally rage in those situations against us when we sin. Smite us with a lightning bolt, drop a piano on our head. But we are experiencing God's wrath when evil runs its course in our life and in our world. And when evil is allowed to run its course, we experience God's wrath. Instead of stopping the boomerang from coming back, God, it's as if God allows it to just smack us in the face and we experience the consequences. And this is how God's judgment often works. In other words, again, you're free to choose, but you are not free from the consequences of your choice. We are going to reap what we sow. And this is the amazing picture then that comes to us of God's grace and God's mercy. And that's how the book of Amos, despite all of the other warnings that are issued, concludes. Look with me at the book of Amos chapter 9, verse 11. God says through Amos, in that day, after all of the things have crumbled, and we know from history that it does, that things get really bad and really hard for these people because of the consequences of what they've done. In that day, when things are in ruins, I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins, I will rebuild it. I will restore its former glory, and Israel will possess what is left of Eden and all the nations that I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, and he will do these things. Verse 13, the time will come, says the Lord, when the grapes and the grain will grow faster than they can be harvested and the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine, and I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from the distant lands, and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. 
and they will plant vineyards and gardens, and they will eat the crops and drink their wine, and I will firmly plant them there in their own land, and they will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. See, after everything that Amos says is going to happen, and after everything happens to these people, and they suffered the consequences of their unjust actions. God is still merciful, and God is still kind, and God is still gracious. And here again, I want us to remember we have to keep the attributes of God linked together. God is both just and God is merciful. God is holy and God is kind. God's attributes are not expressed or exercised independently of each other. Look again at that passage in Romans chapter 2, verse 8, that talks about God pouring out his wrath on those who live for themselves. The very same verse says, don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see God's kindness is intended? It is a purpose. It's intended to turn you from your sin. So friends, it's easy to become discouraged when you look through the book of Amos and go, wow, it's really bad. Like they have really fallen short of what God's expectations are. Or look at our own lives when we think about what does God expect of us or the wider church or think, man, we've fallen short. We've mistreated and ignored people around us. But we can also take comfort that while it is still called today, there is always the opportunity for us to experience God's kindness. Conviction where the Spirit is working and we're paying attention to that is only the beginning of that process. God's kindness is intended to turn us from sin and destruction. And this, friends, is the message of the gospel, the good news. That God, in and through the work of Jesus reconciled us to God so that we are no longer under God's wrath, but we experience peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if you're listening, it's not too late for you. Sometimes we fall into patterns of thinking. We say, oh, God could never forgive me for this or for that, or I'm never going to experience God's presence like I did in this situation or that. God could never offer forgiveness and mercy to me. But that is not what we know about God. We know that God is just, and his justice embedded in that 